0: Whether you're an entrepreneur, event planner, political organizer, video producer, cattle farmer, fashion designer, architect, real estate agent, or magazine editor, Airtable can help you create your way. Learn more and get a special offer for the Founders Project listeners at Airtable.com foundersproject Founders Project. Welcome to Ink's The Founder's Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, founder of Learn Best, author of the New York Times best-selling book, Financially Fearless, the forthcoming book, Financially Forward, and most recently, founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm committed to investing in founders who are building our future. Each week, I love to sit down with the top entrepreneur to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. This week, we have Susan Tynan, the founder and CEO of Framebridge, the startup making custom picture framing easy and affordable. After a career in consulting and a degree from Harvard Business School and a stint at the Obama administration, Susan launched Framebridge in 2014. She has since raised about $82 million in funding, hired hundreds of employees, and set up shop making frames in Lexington, Kentucky. Just last month, FrameBridge opened their first brick-and-mortar location in Washington, D.C. Let's welcome Susan. Hi, Susan. Hi.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: We're so happy to have you. And before I even get started, I tell you, I was born in Kentucky. So I just love that that's where you guys um, have set up shop making frames. So let's start there. First, just tell us in your own kind of words why you started FrameBridge. You could have started a hundred things. And then also, I want to obviously hear why Kentucky. Yes.
1: So I started FrameBridge to solve my own problem. I had four national parks posters that I brought to a frame store and I had a really uncomfortable experience there. One, I felt sort of ashamed at what I was framing that it didn't meet whatever standard I think um, the framer thought it should. And two, um, it was, I felt like I was being upsold the whole time. And so it cost me $400 each to frame them rather simply. And, um, and so I thought, well, this is crazy. People have wonderful things that they love, and I bet they would frame more if someone made it easy and affordable. And so that was, that was what we set out to do, and exactly what we've done is make um, framing easy so the designs are all beautiful, the process is quick, and the price is attainable, and so that you can feel free to sort of see anything you like, whether it's digital or physical, and bring it into your life and on the wall.
0: So first of all what you just recited about going to a framing store pretty much matches every experience I've ever had. Framing is just a massive industry. Can you like explain to us how you make that something that you can scale and give delight walk us through the customer experience. Yeah, so
1: um, for five years, we have sold direct to consumer online. So customers use our website or app and they tell us if they have what they have is physical or digital. If it's physical, we send them packaging to mail us their art, prepaid label on it. They return it to us, and that's where we do our framing in um, outside of Lexington, Kentucky. We frame it and return it to them ready to hang. And so that happens in days and you open the box and with hardware installed already you can enjoy it immediately and then if you have a digital photo of course you just upload it or pull it from your feed and we print it and frame it and again return it to ready to hang um shipping included always so really when we designed the process we looked at every single step that felt again uncomfortable and tried to make it delightful and really having this belief that the what people frame is really, really special and that the way in which the industry was delivering this service was missing that point. <laughs> it was really missing. It was like you were so caught up in worrying about the grade of materials. We've made those decisions for you. High grade materials across the board. Um, But but you were so busy being sort of confused by the process that you were forgetting the special part, which is the part inside the part you started with. And so it was essential to us to also make sure at at sort of every point in the customer journey, we were validating that part too, the what people were framing. So we've been direct to consumer online and now beginning to expand into
0: retail as well. Can you give everybody just a sense of, what does this cost? Like if you're going to do something small, you're going to frame a normal piece of paper versus something really large, like 36 by 46. Can you give people a sense of what, I, by the way, I know I, I know that the, neither of what I just said are normal measurements, um, No. give people well, a sense of, of what does this cost?
1: So it's really important to me also to say, it doesn't have to be a normal measurement because we've made the pricing clear and upfront. People often think, well, it's not really custom. Nope. We are custom building every frame to a sixteenth of an inch. So trust me, our operations would be far less complex (laughs) if we were shipping these frames from somewhere else, but we were hand-building every single one for you. So it was important to us to anchor our midpoint price at $99, and that was truly so that most things, a small poster, certainly a diploma, all those things could be $99 or less delivered to your door, and everything is um, under $209. So you can get a 32 by 40 again, shipped to your door, for about $200. And so then we started, prices started at $39. But the most important part of our pricing model is again that everything is clear and upfront. Because when we talk to customers about their experiences framing, it wasn't only the high price point that kept them out, it was the intimidation, it was the not knowing. And so, really, as part of expanding the market for framing, it was very important to me that people would know about how much it cost. So when they walked to, if they saw an old map at a flea market, they would know, oh, I know, that'll be 79 to 99 I know, depending on the size, I know how much it would cost at FrameBridge. I don't have to wonder, will I be upsold? And it's all of a sudden, you know, $300, 400 $500. So we really wanted to change behavior in the category through this clear pricing model.
0: I love it. I absolutely love it. And um, one of my passion projects is uh, interior design. And I will say framing is you know, beautiful framing that can go up on a wall really changes rooms. And so you're absolutely right. it It is intimidating, even for me. And I've invested a lot of time in trying to get it down. And that's exactly why I love FrameBridge so much. So I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about your operations. You manufacture all of your own frames in the United States in the facility in Kentucky. Can you just walk us through, how did you figure that out? How did you land that that setup? Walk us through a little bit of what makes that unique.
1: Sure. So when when we first launched Greenbridge, or actually when we first raised money to build it, our plan was not to control our own manufacturing out of the gates. We knew what we knew, which was design and, and consumer technology. And we thought, you know, we'll partner with people and for fulfillment until we get to a certain scale. But what we really found was we wanted to Control the entire customer experience, and the more conversations we had planning for the business, the more we just felt really uncomfortable doing it any other way besides vertically integrated. So we um, probably, to the surprise of our initial investors, um, rented a warehouse um, near where our headquarters is in Washington D.C. and bought used framing equipment, right, and convinced a local framer to moonlight with us and help us find some staff in order to to start building those processes and our manufacturing out of the gates. And so we did that. And so scaling this business has not been easy. Um, Now we have moved all of of manufacturing into our centralized facility in Kentucky. um, And we've continued to iterate and continue to get better and more efficient, which of course, for the business story of Framebridge, is really important. Second part, right? That if we aggregate all of this demand, not only can we deliver it at a lower cost, but we can also um, get smarter and smarter about what people are framing and how we can delight them more.
0: So you've talked openly about all of the different learnings of managing things like spikes and orders. How do you manage to keep business steady when you have to contend with things like seasonality? I got two frame bridge gifts for Christmas, for example, from two friends. So I can only imagine, especially if you're making them custom to one, you know, one sixteenth of an inch. Um, Walk us through, how did you, how did you figure out how to handle with spikes? So
1: one, I have to honestly tell you that my heart skipped a beat because I feared I was like, you got them by Christmas, right?
0: I I did. I got them by Christmas and they were wonderful and beautifully wrapped.
1: Very good. Um, Truly, you know, uh, there's some spike we just have to accept. Our business makes a heck of a lot of sense at Christmas and we're privileged to be a part of that. Our existing customers come back to us and new customers finally have a reason to engage with us. And so delivering at Christmas will always matter to us. And we anticipate that will always be a very spiky part of our year. So we can plan for that. Um, we do have other seasonal spikes. We're in our Father's Day prep right now. And so um, so we really have to build the systems and the processes and the training that support bringing on seasonal labor during these periods in a way that doesn't impact quality. And so it's something, you know, we're always thinking about. And a lot of investment we've made in our operations is because of that. We also, of course, are are making sure we're thinking of, you know, It's in our best interest, and we think the best interest of customers, to encourage people to memorialize wonderful things that happen to them throughout the year. And of course, there are things like weddings and babies and marathons and everything else happening throughout the year. And so I think in that way, we just have to continue to be great marketers and merchandisers. And I think retail will help with that as well, to help encourage people to get their home projects done at times outside of Christmas.
0: So let's just shift into customer happiness, which we know is a big priority for FrameBridge. How do you deliver on that promise and how do you build a team that is able to deliver excellent customer service? And and I'll give you an example. Just the basic measurements sometimes I think are a real challenge for people, myself included. And the number of times I've had to be like, oh, goodness, I've got to measure that wall again because I already forgot the measurements that I measured as I walked away. How do you help people just, again, have great customer service around something that is important? Ultimately, your customer has to give you good data so that you can build the right size frame.
1: Right. So you've led me to the first thing we did was design the experience and then continuously update the experience with the customer in mind. So if you're mailing us a piece of art, we ask you to give us a rough estimate of the dimensions so we can price it right and send you the right packaging. But our team is going to measure it exactly. So we want to, anytime we can take the weight off of you, we want to. So that is an important part of the customer design. And it's interesting because I always see ideas sort of creep back in that puts more work on the customer. And so it is my job as the founder and CEO to always be trying to make sure we're pulling anything off the customer that it isn't the customer's job to do. The customer's job is to have something special they want to frame, and it's our job to get them something beautiful. So that's one, it's certainly in the design of the, the entire experience. But then, you know, really throughout the company, I have learned by failing to do this consistently that customer happiness, and in our our metric for that is usually is net promoter score, has to be what I lead with. And it used to be all I led with, and I became sort of a joke, I think, to our team, to our investors. It's all Susan talks about. Yes, they have a spectacular NPS, great for them. But I realized when I led with anything else, it slipped, and I and I now have uh, so much more confidence in my leadership um, and how essential that is, that the only way we're going to be the company we want to become and that I'm going to be proud to be our leader is if I'm always centering us back to the customer. And I think especially in our category, in our category for two reasons. One, because we only have a business opportunity because the category wasn't serving customers well. So that, that was the market need we found. And then two, because of the want we're framing for people. Like, people, there's so much emotion in what we do. So we got to deliver.
0: So I actually want to uh, double click into that last answer, which is basically, if you think about it, people use FrameBridge when it really is about their special moments. You're framing something that they are proud enough or or find um, special enough that they want to put on walls. So... Can I just hear, like, what's your favorite framing story? Because I'm sure there are plenty and many that um, guide the fuel of the culture at FrameBridge. What's yours that you probably use over and over in team meetings? So I have
1: one that I always use, but I will say they are refreshed truly daily. So I'll give you my, my all-time favorite and then, a, then one I just saw. So my all time favorite is uh, the rules of the fort. It was a, a cardboard piece of a fort that a uh, um, the customer was the mom and her children had built this fort. Um, years ago and the rules of the fort were kid-like but very sweet like be kind to one another but then one's like you can't lie down in the fort and never come to the fort mad and things like that and so she had saved it over the years and then framed it for her grown kids for christmas and said it was just such a hit and she sent us this gorgeous photo of these um 20 something year old kids so like really we rem- like just reminiscing together about the fort and so um I I just loved that for so many reasons. And I do believe, I don't think that would have been framed had Framebridge not existed. So I love that.
0: So amazing. And uh, just quickly, a 10 second story. I came home from the hospital with our baby girl um, eight weeks ago, Rosie, and my four-year-old who just started drawing. I mean, I can't make this up. She literally ran into her little playroom and she drew a family of five with arms and legs and like faces and my husband has purple hair in it and I have bright blue hair. And like the baby is, you know, appropriately the baby size. And we were like, we have to frame this and keep it for the rest of our lives. And to your point, if framing was a bazillion dollars, I probably wouldn't, but it may actually end up being like the most special piece of art that I ever will own.
1: That is wonderful and a perfect frame bridge use. It really is. We um, just, someone on our team just shared a story with me of a, a beautiful um, postcard that had a rainbow design on it. I'm going to weep telling the story. And the customer said that um, his dad sent it to him. He had not come out to his family. And um, his dad sent it to him as just a way of saying like, I know and I accept you. So, I mean, wow, really, really powerful things. And so, again, I think, when we look at metrics, typical e-commerce metrics, maybe for happiness or delivery, like we just need a higher standard because of the because of what we're doing.
0: Oh my gosh, you just gave me chills. Also, just again, the stories you guys must be collecting of people and what they frame and why, but it's so obvious and so simple. It's the things you put on your walls are things that matter a lot to you for some reason. That's that's pretty cool. Um, So I want to switch gears for a second, which is to what makes you tick. So you went, spent a few years working in the Obama administration. And what I want to understand is what did you learn from being in politics in the White House that has made you a better entrepreneur?
1: Mm. Uh, Probably a couple things. One, that experience was go, go, go. It was a ton of work. And I realized I like work. Right. So that that didn't make that that enriched the experience. I I felt like I was working on something worthy at the time I had a newborn, my firstborn, And I thought in a strange way, this is appropriate because being in a in a job, in a role that felt important, that the work was important and that they, you know, that I could contribute felt like less of a strain and pull than actually being in an, you know, a less exciting job going back to work for the first time so after a baby. So that was interesting. Um, so I, I realized, loved the pace, loved working with smart people. But, you know, government is very hard. <laughs> it is really, even when really smart people come up with great ideas, there are just structural reasons. You just can't get things done um, with the speed at which you're working or with the speed at which you wish you could. And I found myself really pining for some of the uh, experiences I had had in startups, and then old colleagues of mine had started a business, and I was watching it grow, and thought, I, you know, I just, I just need to be in that environment again, um, where when you see something that doesn't make sense, you can, you have the power to just fix it.
0: Wow, I can only, um, I've never worked in politics, but I can imagine if you're a doer that it just can be very frustrating. And with that, we'll be right back after this. In the 1990s, an engineer and avid bird watcher named Eiji Nakatsu was fascinated by the way the Kingfisher could dive into the water without making a splash. He later designed a new high-speed train for Japan Railway West based on the shape of the Kingfisher's beak, which broke world speed records while reducing noise and energy consumption. This creative breakthrough is brought to you by Airtable. Learn more and get a special offer for Founders Project listeners at Airtable.com forward slash Founders Project. I want to hear a little bit about your own firsthand story of making the jump to be a founder. So you had that moment where you were like, huh, why did you know this frame store owner make this such a judgmental or hard time for you to even get your own thing framed that kind of said to you, there's got to be a better way. And it's a huge market opportunity. But as you started to make that jump, what was like your psyche? Like where were you in your own life in terms of Uh, strength, courage uh, that let you actually jump off that cliff and start FrameBridge?
1: I mean, in hindsight, yes, it was pretty courageous, but I didn't feel that at the time. I just felt a lot of conviction and I felt that was just like where all of my energy was going. I had a day job, but I just wanted to be working on FrameBridge and sort of every Waking moment. I wasn't at working at my day job. That's what I was thinking about. And I just felt like if I felt such excitement toward it, I owed it to myself to do it. And so really, I once I sort of got there in my own mind,
0: no amount of people telling me it was crazy was going to stop me. Those first six months, the first 12 months, when you look back, exciting, scary? Are you like, God, those are the days of my life? Like, I'm I'm just trying to get a sense of like the, the ethos that you had.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit of both, right? So sitting around a table with um, the three women who were part of the original team, like we sat around a card table and then a card table in our original warehouse, like that was really fun. That was very exciting. But I would say that was sort of like when we were either just about to launch or when we launched and started getting orders, that time was very exciting. I would say the buildup to launch was pretty scary because that felt like without customer feedback, what do you have? You just you know you just and don't so know. yeah um, so that that was I think I would not want to go to those days without customers and I'm glad that 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 conviction and that the early team members who were brave enough to join me too joined me with it and that we were able to get through that period but I, I yes I don't that wasn't the peak to, the peak of the experience
0: at all question for you in those early days when did you know you were onto something what, what was the moment when you were like this is going to be a big company.
1: So we launched in mid-July 14, but hilariously, we had a password-protected site just in case we were inundated. It was beta. <laughs> <laughs> and I really, anytime someone launches an e-commerce site, unless they have some sort of like bizarre marketing budget to support it, right? I'm like, I promise you, you won't be inundated. Even if you get the press hit, even you won't be. But um,
0: Yeah, you're like, you want to be inundated. That's right, the goal. right.
1: But I do remember um, we did get a, it was a, a home decor blogger wrote a really positive post about us. And it was October 31st of that year. We just, we, I just woke up and checked orders as I normally did. And all of a sudden there were just a lot of orders and a lot of orders from people I did not know. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's on. And then it was on, of course, because we had the Christmas season after that and continued to scale. So um, it took a couple months, but then sort of there was an unlock.
0: That's so rewarding, and I'm smiling for you because it's also just so fun when you're finally like, wow, this is really working. Um, walk us through a little bit of all the funding you've raised. Did it get easier as you raised bigger rounds? Was every round of funding hard? And I say this as an entrepreneur who myself with LearnVest raised $75 million in multiple five rounds of funding, so I kind of know the drill, but I want to hear, like in your own words, how did each round go?
1: I think every round was hard. <laughs> um, and I say that with compassion to other founders. I think, ironically, the Sea Brown maybe not, but may have been a little bit easier, only because I wound up raising money from people who knew my work product. I had worked um, for companies that they had invested in, or so they knew me as a manager, and so there was a belief that I would pursue something that I was um, could get something done. And then I think I was lucky enough to find a couple investors who also. Um, believed that custom framing was a big enough category and was a category that deserved disruption. But I mean, certainly, I spoke to hundreds of investors before that who couldn't get on board. And only in hindsight do I realize, like, because there was so much we hadn't built that we had to build, you also had to you had to have some belief that there was a track record of someone who was going to get it done. So that was the first round. But then everyone after that, there have just been different level challenges. Look, this business took more to scale than we thought it would be. So there so there were a couple early rounds where you know it was like, look, customers love us. I swear we can get there. Um, and there was a lot of commitment and um, belief from my early investors who really, really stuck by me and have continued to stick by me. And then I think last year when we raised a Series C from T. Row Price, that felt pretty grown up. That felt like, you know, we're going to be a big business, I know this. And um, so that was exciting. And that was when we started getting more serious about incorporating retail as part of our strategy. And I would say that in later rounds, we also had customer data. And so that is, that's always my proudest thing to share with a potential investor, like check this customer data out, because you can't fake that, right? We have the only way we can get repeat customers is to deliver. And so you just can't like there's no easy way to have that. And so because we do, and part of, again, what we were trying to show was that we could even just change the way people interacted with the category. And now we have the proof that we're doing that. Um, I would say in that way, it gets a little bit easier. You don't have to just believe in me and the dream. You can actually look at numbers.
0: I love it. So as you think about retail and the future of retail, I have two questions. The first is, Talk to me a little bit about how you at Framebridge think about online versus offline and the use of physical versus uh, fully digital.
1: Yeah. In some ways, I just don't care. I want to meet the customer wherever she is and make her life easier. So in that way, I care deeply about both. So we just opened up our first two stores actually in Washington, D.C., near headquarters and are definitely going to be rolling more out um, next year. And I think are are really realizing how helpful it is to our customers. But our customers still want the same things from us. They want a easy, friction-free experience. They want the design to be clean, but beautiful, and that they have confidence in the design. And they want clear upfront pricing. And so we can deliver that through um, retail stores just as well as we can online. And then I also want, you know, we have to use the advantage we have of being digitally native to make it a, a really seamless experience. So if a customer starts online or starts in the store, like they you know, they don't run into any hurdles, we're the same frame bridge and we can help them wherever they are. So I'm really excited about the thought of, of scaling both together, but again, just in service of people framing more stuff that matters to them in, in sort of whatever way they wanna engage with us.
0: Are you going to be secretly um, sitting in those stores and watching customers in every detail? And... Of course,
1: of course. I like hide in the back room because I think it's like I'm like, what, what should I do? And I don't want to be out there, but I absolutely and it's it's funny. There is just something about hearing things firsthand that makes you better, and so it, it's already been fun hearing that customer feedback.
0: That's so wonderful. As you fast forward ten years. What do you think is happening with with shopping and, and and retail, digitally speaking? Just like what are your predictions if you had to pick one, two, or three just things that you think are absolutely happening every day in your industry?
1: Oh, well, okay. So I'm going to be uh, – these are pretty obvious. I do think there are going to be stores, but uh, like every store will be a fo- small footprint, right? Um, So little experiential stores, mobile entirely – and um, reusable packaging.
0: Tell us a little bit more about the reusable packaging.
1: Yeah, so it's something we're um, certainly looking at several different initiatives on. Um, it's just really that, like, all of its convenience for the customer is creating a lot of waste, right? And the very same customers um, who care about want care about the convenience, also do care about the planet. Um, and so um, I'm starting to see other startups. I'm starting to see a number of packaging startups and it's exciting. I recently learned about a startup called Loop. I don't know if you've seen them, but truly trying to make even the grocery experience, like the grocery delivery to your house that you could buy consumer packaged goods um, in, in a waste-free way and return the packaging. And so that's really cool. I'm excited to see how everybody um, continues to experiment there.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. So obviously as you've gone from, you know, startup napkin, small, sounds like a a poker table sitting in a warehouse with two other people to today. How have you had to evolve? What is the one or two things that you had to like shift gears mentally on to be a better leader?
1: Yeah, I'm really in process on this. I think in early days, well, actually my whole life I've said, I thought, well, I can work harder or hustle more Right. So like I can always be your leader because I'm going to work this hard. I'm going to actually like physically throw myself at this and we can solve anything if I physically throw myself at this. And I do think in the the early days of a startup, that's important. And I think even maybe motivational to other people. But I think people need different things from me now. Right. So I do think it's important that I uh, prioritize, that I communicate the priorities clearly, that I empower talented people around me. To do things. And so that's, it's a shift, right? It is not simply muscling yourself. It's it's getting a talented group of people willing to muscle with you.
0: I love that. Uh, quickly, we want your productivity haps. What kind of, h- how do you make it all work? You're, you're a mom, you've got a fast growing company, um, you're managing two, you know, two totally different locations between DC and Kentucky. What are the two or three kind of rules you live by for productivity? Hmm.
1: Well, certainly, I do believe in doing the hardest thing first in the day, so that is you should wake up early, you should do the hard thing, and then your whole day you like did the thing or wrote the email, or you know I do believe in that, so that's one I would say um otherwise, I think I try not to actually I'm almost almost entirely guilt free like my kids see me, they love me, I bring a ton of energy to them, they're in good shape, so I try not to to waste time with guilt, to be honest. Yeah. I like, I travel a lot. I'm busy. They know it. They are excited by what we're building too. And so we're all in it. And then I would say sort of mini, I've not had a lot of time. I'm still really in the push of Framebridge, So I have not had time. Like I don't take a two week holiday. I don't take a week holiday. I haven't had that much time for mental breaks. So I take mini ones, right? Like I will sometimes say like tonight or on this flight home, I'm watching Netflix right and so I really have like gotten it sounds so crazy to get more disciplined to have mental breaks but I have and I do think it makes a difference um and I think I run a consumer business so I have to be sort of engaged in what's happening in the world and part of that is taking a little free time as well
0: I love it okay we're gonna end on just our power round here um and some of the questions I really love to ask and and I can tell you have such a high EQ and you love people and you're passionate. And even just from this interview, it's so obvious when you interview people, what is your like one secret weapon question that you feel like gets to the core of who somebody is or just something that you like to ask because it teaches you something really unique? But like, what's your what's your favorite interview question?
1: Well, I always say what tell me the experience, the project you were working on when you were in the flow. Right when you had so when you were the highest energy because it was coming together, what were you working on?
0: I love that. I studied positive psychology undergrad. Yes,
1: it's totally rooted in that. Right, we may as well put people where they're going to excel.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. And then you basically extrapolate from that: where do people like to be, and what kind of environment is good for them? Um, That's such a good one. Okay, just last quick questions here: What gets you out of bed every morning?
1: Um, Customers, truly. Building Framebridge and whatever is the latest, greatest idea for getting better.
0: I think we kind of got this, but I'm going to ask for it differently, which is what's your biggest pinch me moment um, so far with Framebridge? You know, it's
1: kind. Of, it really is any Framebridge in the wild moment, like seeing a Framebridge box on the subway.
0: That's so cool. <laughs> and we were like, there you go. And I'm not carrying it. <laughs> right, right. That's so great. OK, Um. last question here is uh, other than Framebridge, what's one other startup that we should know about? Um,
1: You know, I really like, I don't, have you heard of the, of Wheezy, the Wheezy Towels women? Yes. I just think they're hustling and I'm impressed by them.
0: I absolutely love it. Um, Susan, you are just so delightful and everybody out there, if you are not already using FrameBridge, you should. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today. If you guys want to learn more about FrameBridge, simply check out www.framebridge.com or find a location near you. Susan, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Alexa. Thank you all for listening. You can subscribe to Inks the Founders Project with Alexa Montobel wherever your podcasts are offered. My book, Financially Forward, comes out May 14th. You can find it wherever books are sold and it will help you understand everything about the future of your wallet and all the best ways to save, spend, and keep your wallet secure.